You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. He was so quiet. It has been an exhausting day. As I read about this day in his life, it was full of preaching and teaching and healing, and then there was that pressure of the crowds all day long. Toward evening, he stepped into his friend's boat, and they pushed off for the opposite side of that big lake, and he apparently fairly soon found a large cushion and set it back near the transom and lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So deep, in fact, (laughs) that he didn't even awaken when the storm hit. Here's this fishing boat out there on the lake is pitching and tossing in, in the waves, the the rain is pouring down from the sky and even pouring in over the gunnels. And on he slept. The situation was getting desperate. And soon his wild-eyed, stressed-out disciples were shaking him out of his much-needed sleep. I can almost see him turning his face toward those desperate men. As between the thunderclaps, they shouted, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! Matthew was out there in that boat that night. And he records for us this, Matthew 8.26, And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. And then Matthew records this, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The wind and the waves knew the Master's voice. And like an obedient dog, they settled down when they heard his voice. You know, the gospel writers don't tell us what Jesus did after that. I wouldn't be surprised if he went back to sleep. (laughs) But Matthew does tell us what the disciples did. He records this in the next verse. And the men marveled, saying, listen to this. The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? What sort of man is this? What category of man is this? How do you categorize someone like we are looking at here in the back of the boat? Someone that a moment ago was exhausted, tired, so tired he fell into a deep sleep, and then in the next moment could command with his voice the wind and the seas to obey. How do you categorize someone like that? What category do you put someone like that in? What sort of man, what manner of man is this? To find an answer to that question, we have to go back to the beginning. So join me, if you would, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And as you turn in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, let me just quickly mention this. Each of the gospel writers is similar in this way. They each of us, each of them tells us the story of Jesus. But they don't tell us all the same details. You read the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Mark takes us back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark begins with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. You read the Gospel of Matthew. He takes us further back. He uses a genealogy to show the rootedness of Jesus Christ 
in the promised people, he takes us all the way back to Abraham. It's as if Luke wants to go even further, so Luke walks us the whole way back to Adam. He takes us the whole way back to the beginning in Adam and, and roots Jesus' genealogy in none other than Adam himself. And we're standing there as far back as we can go, right? And we think, well, you can't go any further back than this. Uh, he just walked us back to the beginning of the human race. And then we read the Gospel of John. And as if John walks us back to the beginning of the human race, and there's the curtain of eternity past, and the Holy Spirit kind of leads John to take hold of that curtain and throw it aside and says, look, look, gaze upon this one. Gaze upon this one who existed in all eternity past. That's the one on whom we are going to gaze this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Let me read to you the first few verses. In the beginning, are you following along? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Isn't that mind-boggling? We'll, we'll take that in, like an orange. We'll take it apart section by section in a few minutes. But what I want you to do now is to drop down to verse 14. So you have the first three verses in your mind. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything was created through Him. Okay, you got that? Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The reason that the disciples in that boat couldn't find a category for Jesus is that he was unique. In fact, in this passage, we won't be able to cover every verse in this passage today, but in this passage, John calls him monogenes or monogenus. If you remember biology class, I don't, I don't expect you to remember biology, but if you do remember biology, do we have any biology teachers? Well, good, I'm not offending anybody in particular. Uh, <laughs> remember the word genus? It's like a category of plants or animals, a category. Jesus is monogenous. He's the only one in his category. That's why the disciples couldn't peg him. That's why they couldn't figure out what category to put him in. It's because he's the only one in his genus. He's, he's the only one in that category. He's, he's unique. He is, as we'll see, the God-man. Let's back up and read the first three verses again, skim through them silently. What had Jesus always been? What had Jesus always been? John begins by saying that in the beginning was the Word. Now, I would guess that many of you, maybe most of you here in this room right now are listening via recording, uh, acknowledge the fact that Jesus did not begin His existence in that Bethlehem stable. I'm sure there's people that think that, but uh, actually Jesus did not begin His existence in that Bethlehem stable. In fact, He did not begin His existence nine months earlier in the womb of His mother Mary. Jesus didn't begin. He, he never began because He always has been. Jesus always has been. In the beginning was the Word. 
You know, Jesus acknowledged that in his earthly ministry. In fact, it almost got him killed. We'll read about that when we get to John chapter 8. He was talking to some of the religious leaders, and he made this bold statement, knowing very well what he was saying. He said, before Abraham was, some of you know this verse, before Abraham was, I am. And when Jesus made that bold declaration, before Abraham was, I am. He was making a clear declaration of his own divinity, his own godness, his own eternality. That he doesn't begin. He says, before Abraham began, before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, when was that? Around 2200 B.C.? Before Abraham began, I already was. I am. And they tried to kill him, recognizing what he was saying. Have you ever wondered what life was like for Jesus in eternity past? What was it like for him? You know, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details, but it does give us glimpses. The night before the cross, John chapter 17, Jesus praying to his heavenly Father in the hearing of his men said this, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had you, had with you before the world existed. The night before the cross, Jesus says, Father, glorify me with that same glory that we enjoyed together before I ever said, let there be light. Before the world existed, Jesus lived in glory. Back to John 1 1. In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God. Showing a distinction between the persons of the Trinity. Later on, we'll hear about the Holy Spirit, but it's clear here that John is, by the Holy Spirit, pointing out that God and the Father and God the Son are separate persons within the Godhead. He was with God. When you think about that relationship, you know, we all enjoy certain relationships. Um, some of us are married, and we enjoy the relationships we have with our spouses, or your parent, or your children, or your good friend, that you enjoy certain relationships. And you know, I think the most precious relationship to me is sitting in the front row here, my wife of 43 years. But we'll be open with you that our relationship, as sweet as it is, has its tensions, its misunderstanding, its stresses. Don't you respect her for being married to me? I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> But I can confess publicly before you that our relationship, as sweet as it is, has its moments. Jesus never had a moment of stress, misunderstanding, falling out, ostracizing rejection from his heavenly Father. He enjoyed from all eternity past a perfect, perfect, loving relationship with his heavenly Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then we read this astonishing statement. And the Word was God. The Word was God. It's stunning. And he's showing that even though Jesus is distinct from the Father, He nevertheless is God Himself. It's a bold statement. It's, it's, it's a stunning statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I remember some time ago in my devotional time, in the morning, I was reading, actually reading through the Gospel of John. And I was sitting there in our living room with my Bible on my lap, and I was reading John 12, and I came across this one particular verse that just took my breath away. Let me give you a little bit of the background. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah was given a glimpse of God in his glory. Let me read to you Isaiah's testimony in Isaiah 6. 
He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. (coughs) My eyes morning in my living room reading John, I read this in John 12, 41. Isaiah saw these things. Excuse me, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. And it dawned on me that morning, reading through the Gospel of John, (coughs) that that phenomenal scene that Isaiah saw of the Lord high and lifted up, The King, the Lord of hosts, was none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Was none other than the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he saw him. That's what it was like for Jesus. That's what it was like for Jesus before Bethlehem. And as God, he was the creator of the universe. And John embellishes on this a bit in John 1.3. He says, all things were made through him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. It was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who spoke those creative words of everything into existence. And in doing so, He makes a statement of authority. Authority. That He has authority over everyone and everything as a Creator God. (coughs) Psalm 50, verse 12 says, God says, For the world is Mine and all that is in it. Not only did all things come into creation through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, but it is Jesus Christ who sustains everything since that nanosecond when He created it. He's the glue that holds everything together. Paul wrote to the Colossians this, chapter 1, 16 and 17, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. It's awesome to think about, isn't it? Do you feel like we could just go home right now and just sit in the wonder of the first three verses of the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things, everyone, everything was created through Him. Nothing exists that wasn't created by Him. I deliberately asked you earlier to drop down to verse 14. Let's do it one more time. With that one in mind, that one that existed in all eternity past as God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh. The Holy Spirit could have chosen a couple of different words to describe this phenomenon. 
But he chose, interestingly, a very blunt word. He could have said this in the original language. He said, and the word became anthropos. The word became a human being, a man. But he chose a much more bold word, a much more blunt word. He didn't say the word became anthropos. The word became a man, a human being. He said the word became sarks. The word became flesh. We, we even do this in our vernacular. If we're trying to make a point sometimes, we'll say real flesh and blood. Real flesh and blood. Well, Jesus was no apparition. He was no figment of someone's imagination. He was no phantom. There are plenty of people over the history since Christ who think that somehow He was just an imagination of what the people in that day wanted to see. But the Holy Spirit is choosing very blunt words to make a point. That the Word became sarks. The Word became flesh. Jesus had a real body. A body that got tired and thirsty and, and hungry. A body that was tempted in every way like we were. And yet without sin, He had flesh. Flesh that felt the pain that bled real blood when those spikes were pounded through His hands and His feet. The Word became sarks. The Word became flesh. Then John says, and He dwelt among us. He, This one that lived in all eternity past with God came and made His dwelling among us. And the Holy Spirit again chooses a fascinating word. He, he says He pitched His tent among us or he, the Word would be tabernacled among us. Now remember, John wrote to a readership, many of whom would have had Jewish backgrounds, many of whom would have known their Old Testament. So when he says the Word pitched His tent, the Word tabernacled among us, that would conjure up images in people's minds. Now, it might not come as readily to us, but let me guide us along that path. Some of you were here a couple years ago. When was it? Several years ago when we went through the book of Exodus together. Some of you remember that, the book of Exodus? And God directed Moses and his team to construct this portable temple. It was called a tabernacle. It was a tent-like structure that they could carry with them through the wilderness, pitching it wherever God said to stop for the time. It had to be built exactly the way God wanted it. Exactly. And then God told them exactly where to put it. Now as they were putting up the tabernacle, where did God tell them to put it? Do some of you remember this? Where did it go? Right in the center. That's right. And so here, if you can picture in your mind's eye, the 12 tribes of Israel, there might have been several million of them even, they were camped all around in a huge rectangle, but smack dab in the middle, God says, put my tabernacle. Now, why would God do that? Why would He say, put my tabernacle right in the middle of the camp? He's making a statement, isn't He? He's saying, I want you to know that I want to be with you. You're my people. You're my people, and I, I want to be with you. I want you to see my glory, that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud that comes down into the Holy of Holies. I want you to see me. I want you to behold the wonder of my glory. I want to be among you. And so when the Holy Spirit directs John to write this, and, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, it's making a statement. It's saying that Old Testament tabernacle, it went, it just pointed to Jesus Christ. It's like a big arrow pointing to Jesus Christ. That He's the fulfillment of this. That Jesus Christ is God come to live among us. Not just for 33 years, but He continues His presence among us in the person of His Holy Spirit. 
And we read Revelation 21 and 22, and it, it makes us cry tears of gratitude when we realize what awaits us. That in the new heavens and the new earth, it tells us there that God will come to us. He'll come to us and make His dwelling among us. He will be our God and we will be His people. Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. The Creative One, the Creator, became human being, flesh, a dependent baby boy. And there's all these contrasts we can think of when we think about the Word becoming flesh. That Jesus Christ, I don't exactly know what happened. I don't want to um, go beyond the Scriptures, but I, I do wonder sometimes what the angelic beings thought, what went through their minds when they watched the Master, as it were, laying aside His royal robes and clothing Himself in the flesh of a baby Jewish boy. That that one who had sat on the throne of the universe was laid in a feeding trough for animals. That one who had smelled the incense of heaven had filling his nostrils that night the uh, repulsive smells of animal urine and defecation. That one who had heard the seraphim since the moment he created them crying out, holy, holy, holy. Now in his little ears was hearing the ugly sounds of donkeys and camels. That one who was the center of attention of all the angelic beings was now largely ignored. That one who had spoken the universe into existence was now making baby sounds. That one who had sustained the universe by his own power was now dependent on a Jewish girl to nurse him and change his diapers. The Word became flesh. The invisible one had taken on visibility. The infinite one had taken on finiteness. The eternal one now lived in time. The transcendent one was now near. The king of kings was now a Jewish boy. The divine had become flesh. God had become man. John calls Jesus the only one of his father, the unique one. We read this phenomenal, this shocking, jolting contrast between in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were created by Him and for Him. We contrast that with, and the Word became flesh. And came and lived here among us, fallen people. And it raises all kinds of questions in our minds. We have all these questions. And one of them that has to be at the forefront of our thinking is, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would the always existing creator of the universe take on flesh? Come down here. Live among us sinners. Why? Why would he do that? When I read this prologue to the Gospel of John, these first 18 verses, I see two prominent reasons. We might see other ones as we go through John, but I see two right here in the prologue. One of them is this. First, 
He came to bring the Father to us. John calls Jesus the Word on purpose, obviously. He's God's Word. He's God's perfect communication. Now, I want to I say something here that's often missed in our culture, even our Christian culture. When we talk to people about being right with God, sometimes people respond by saying something like this. Well, you have your way to God and I have mine. You know, I'm not going to diss you. I'm not going to try to cut you down for seeking God the way you do through Jesus. But I'll find my own way to God. And there's this conception, there's this idea, this perception, that somehow we can all discover God. We can all find our way to God. Now, now I, I want to be blunt. That's a damning fallacy. That's the kind of fallacy, that's the kind of wrong thinking that will damn people to hell. People that think, I'll find my way to God. You see, we fallen human beings, the Bible says the natural man, the man without Christ, cannot, cannot understand spiritual things. You and I with our own reasoning, you and I with our own experiences, cannot find God. We're blinded to God. We're blinded by our sin, our fallenness. You and I cannot discover God. We cannot on our own find God and figure Him out and figure out a way to get to Him. God has to reveal Himself to us. God has to take the initiative to come to us, else we are all lost. And the good news is He has done just that. He has revealed Himself. Now, we think, for instance, that he reveals himself in a general way in creation. He's let everyone know his power, certain invisible qualities through what he's made. You see the sky, you see the earth, you see plants, animals, people, and you realize he's a powerful God. But it doesn't tell us general revelation, natural revelation, the creation itself, doesn't tell us how to be right with God. We need something more to tell us the way back to God. And so God speaks to us. He gives us His Word. I love how the author of Hebrews calls Jesus. He says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. I love that. Jesus is the exact representation of His being. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look to the Son. You see the God the Father in the Son. You see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the exact representation. And so if mankind, fallen mankind, and God were ever to be reconciled, God had to come to us. God had to be brought to us, and He was brought to us in the Word, Jesus Christ. And then John says, we've seen His glory. We've seen the glory of God in Christ. And you know, when we read that in the, uh, this statement here in John 1, it's easy to think of those amazing incidents, you know. Man, the, tr the amount of transfiguration when Jesus just started emanating glory and the guys up there in the mountains says, let's stay here, <laughs> you know, let's, let's build a tabernacle here. I mean, yeah. Or maybe you think of those times that Jesus healed a blind person, you know, gave him sight or a lame person, gave him healing of his legs. Maybe you think of those times where Jesus actually raised the dead. And you say, yeah, you see His glory, and you do. But you realize those aren't the only places we see the glory of God in Christ. We see the glory of God in Christ in the less noticeable times when He showed compassion to someone who was hurting. You see the compassion of God on display, the glory of God on display through Jesus Christ in those moments too. 
But do you know the focal point of God's glory on display? It's the cross. It's the cross. I'm getting this in the lips of our Savior. The night before the cross, just hours before the cross, Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 33. We're going to see this when we get to John 13. Jesus, talking to his men the night before the cross, said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And Jesus, as he looks forward to the morning, looks forward to the cross, said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. But Jesus realized that the glory of God would be most clearly displayed on the cross itself. There was an old writer, he's been in heaven for a long time now, with the interesting name of Octavius Winslow. He wrote this, and I quote, Study God in the cross of Jesus. Look at him through this wondrous telescope, and although as through a glass darkly you behold his glory, yet that rude and crimsoned cross more fully reveals the mind of God, more harmoniously discloses the perfections of God, and more perfectly unveils the heart of God, more fully exhibits the glory of God than the combined power of 10,000 worlds like this. And then Mr. Winslow wrote, Study God in Christ and Christ in the cross. You want to know the glory of God? Look at Christ. You want to know the glory of Christ? Look at the cross. But at the cross, mercy and justice kiss. You see the glory of God on display in Christ on the cross. That's why Paul said, may I never boast except and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here all the perfections of God are on display as we see the compassionate, loving, gracious, just, sovereign grace of God. So, as John says at the end of the prologue, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. One reason the Word became flesh was to bring God to us. But then, more briefly now, Jesus also came to bring us to God. So he came to bring God to us and came to bring us to God. And in the prologue, in these verses, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we're going to see key words that come out with significance later on in the book of John. Words like light. Light's useful, isn't it? I mean, light helps us to see, helps us to see reality. You know, even if you're very familiar, for instance, with your own bedroom, if you get up and it's dark, You think you know your way around, but you might not realize that your spouse left a laundry basket right there, you know, hypothetically. Um, You know, and and so you can't see. You need light. You need light to see reality. And Jesus is that light. Jesus comes and he shows us reality. He shows us what God is like. He shows us what we are, what we're like. And he shows us how to be right with God. Uh, Reality is seen in Christ. He's the light. He's also the life. When we get a little bit later in John, John chapter 10, we're going to hear Jesus say this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can ever snatch them out of my hand. But he gives light, he gives life, he brings grace. And oh, what a costly grace it will be. He brings truth. No more deception from the evil one. He'll he'll bring truth, Jesus. 
suffering, grace, truth. He's the bringer of all those things. He is those things embodied. Everything we need to be right with God. Jesus came. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He created everything. That one became flesh and lived among us. Why? To bring God to us and bring us to God. So what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to respond to this jolting truth that that one became flesh? One response we're called to is belief. Right here in this passage, what does it say in verses 12 and 13? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we talk about believing in Jesus Christ, we're saying, we're not, we're saying more than this. Yeah, be a Jesus fan. You know, I think there's a lot of people in this world that are Jesus fans, you know. Yeah, Jesus is a pretty cool guy. You know, I'm all for Jesus. I got nothing against Jesus. You know, and they think by, by saying that, that somehow that makes them Christians. You know, I'm, I'm pro-Jesus. But when it says to believe in his name, it's much more profound than that. It's, it's much more invasive than that. It's, it's much more inclusive than that. It, it means that you abandon all other attempts of ever being right with God and put all of your eggs in the Jesus basket. And what I mean by that is this. There are plenty of people in the world that think, I'm okay with God because of my family connections. I mean, you look at my parenting. I come from a good family. I'm okay with God. And there were plenty of people in Jesus' day that thought that way. They thought because of their ethnicity, their parentage, that somehow that gave them in, an in with God. There are other people who say, well, you hear this a lot in our culture. You say, are you going to heaven? And people will say, I sure hope so. What does that mean? I mean, think about it. What does that mean? I mean, that is the typical response. I sure hope so. What people mean by that is what? I hope I'm good enough. I hope I'm good enough. You know, I, I really try to be a moral person, at least most of the time. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? And, but I, I try to be a moral person. I hope I'm good enough for God. And when people say that to me, I always want to ask the next question, which is, how good do you have to be? I mean, how good do you have to be to be good enough for a perfect God? I mean, excuse my rudeness, but God's not impressed with your goodness. He's perfect. Exactly zero sin. Exactly zero imperfections. And if you try to parade your puny morality in the presence of a holy God, do you think that's going to impress Him? That He's going to say, oh, okay, come on in. I don't think so. In fact, I know not. But I know that's not true. And yet people do that. Or, or some people might try religion. They say, well, yeah, I try, I'm trying to get back to church. You know, I'm going to put some money in the offering plate, and that's going to impress God, right? Believing in Christ means this. You take all of your attempts of being right with God through parentage or morality or, or religion, and you chuck them all. You say, that's not going to get me to God. My parentage isn't going to get me to God. My, my morality isn't going to get me to God. My religiosity isn't going to get me to God. And you chuck them all passionately, vigorously. Chuck them all. And you say, my only hope, my only hope of ever being right with God is to throw myself on Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. 
who lived the life in the flesh that I should have lived and did. The one who died the death that I should have died. Because of my rebellion, I cast all of my hopes, I put all of my hopes in Jesus Christ. And that's not just for initial salvation. It's for daily life. You preach that gospel to yourself every day. Every day you say, all of my hope is found in Him and Him alone. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. We are to believe. We are to worship. We have seen His glory. You know, the same John wrote other books in the Bible. First and second and third John. He also was used by the Holy Spirit to write the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse. When you read the first chapter of Revelation, and this very same John saw the glorified Jesus Christ, and he seeks to describe what he saw in the glorified Jesus Christ, and he's grasping for metaphor and analogy, trying to describe this glorious Jesus Christ, and it was so overwhelming that John says, I fell down as though dead, that he saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And you know, one day, Christian friend, you and I are going to stand in the presence of the glorified Jesus Christ. And I have this pretty strong hunch. I have this pretty strong belief that you and I, when we see the glorified Jesus Christ, and we see Him even more clearly than John saw Him out there on Patmos that day, we'll see the glory of Jesus Christ emanating the glory of God Himself. And what's going to course through our mind at that point is this. That's the one! That's the one who became flesh! That's the one who chose to come to this fallen planet to save the likes of me. That's the one who had his hands and his feet pierced for me. And we will be so caught up in the wonder of seeing him in his glory that we will go throughout all eternity worshiping and never tiring, never tiring of reflecting back to him the wonder of who he is. Belief, worship. And let me say it this way. We tell it forward. Remember why the Holy Spirit had John write this gospel? We'll see it in chapter 20, verse 31. John says, I write these things so that you would believe. This whole book was written so the people would see Christ and in seeing Him would put all their faith in Him. Well, you and I as followers were disciples like John was. We pass it on. We pass it forward. Even as Nate mentioned, Pastor Nate mentioned in his sermon last Sunday, we get on mission with him. And that we say, let us share this message of this glorious Savior. When I'm with my classmates, when, when I'm with my friends, when I'm with my co-workers, my relatives, let me speak of him. Can I, can I show you Jesus Christ? Can I tell you about him? And then we're glad to tell people about Jesus Christ. We they carry it forward. They carry it forward in our context. So this is a glorious passage. I realize we've dipped our toe into this ocean of God's truth today. I encourage you to meditate on it more. And as we go through the Gospel of John in the coming months, we're going to see more and more of this glorious Savior. Can I just pray for us? The Lord would help us on that amazing journey. Stand with me as I pray.